for Mortals, the podcast that says life is too damn short to spend your time and attention worrying about your food choices. So let's take a deep breath and then join us, two registered dietitians and friends, as we explore the world of nutrition with a special focus on cultivating a healthy and peaceful relationship with food. My name is Matt Priven and I am joined as always by my co-host and the best dietitian on planet earth, Jen Baum. Hey, Jen. Hey, Matt. And just a quick reminder, if you are enjoying the show, um, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts as that really helps to kind of spread the word. And if you have any ideas for the show, we have an email and it's nutritionformortals at gmail.com. And we love receiving show ideas. Yeah, hit us up. All right, Jen, what are we digging into today? Yeah, so I think the title of this episode will likely give people a pretty clear idea of where we're headed today. And the three concepts that we're touching on today have definitely trended on social media over the last few years. And I think it makes sense to talk about them together since they are essentially all ways that people could be raised to think about or interact with food. And all three of the concepts we're going to talk about also have the ability to influence how someone may relate to food later in life. And I don't know about you, Matt, but I think it's not often that we think about how we were raised with food and how that could impact us as an adult. Totally. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's such an important formative time in our relationship with food. And it's good to explore how you were raised, and how that affects your relationship with food now. And so all these topics, well, let's let's go through them. What are the topics we're going to be covering? And then we'll dig into the first one. Perfect. So we're going to be talking about ingredient households. We are definitely going to be digging into almond moms. And then we're going to wrap up by talking about the Clean Plate Club. Oh boy, this this could go a whole bunch of ways. (laughs) So many ways. (laughs) All right. Ingredient households is where we're going to start, right? Yes. So again, this is one that's trended on social media in the last few years pretty hard. Um, And essentially an ingredient household is a phrase that refers to a household where there's no ready to eat food, but rather only ingredients that are used to make something from scratch. So An ingredient household is the opposite of what's called a ready-made household. So let me give you an example just to kind of clarify. A ready-made household, a household that may have more convenience foods, might have like a freezer full of frozen pizzas. But an ingredient household would really only have like flour, mozzarella cheese, tomatoes. So an ingredient household is one where there's really nothing packaged or convenient or ready to eat. It's just like lots of different ingredients. And let's actually play a clip from dietitian and YouTuber Abby Sharp, who I think explains this concept pretty well. So let's talk about the other potential scenario where adults create ingredient only households to bar their kids access to perceived junk or highly processed snack foods. And some might say, hey, this is a smart way to reduce waste, packaging, and unhealthy food. And sure, in a perfect world where everyone has lots of time and excellent food skills, yeah, you're probably right. But what would I do if I was hungry for a snack while short on time, yet everything in the house would require at least 30 minutes prep time? I would probably skip the snack. 
I would probably eat less even though my body was asking for fuel. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So I think that's a great description of an ingredient household. And Abby definitely touches on the consequences of growing up in an ingredient household, which you and I are going to talk about in a few minutes. But what's really interesting about kind of going to social media and hearing people share their experiences of growing up in an ingredient only household is them just talking about the lack of food, how hard it was, for example, to find snacks. Like, I'll give you a couple examples of kind of common snacks people talked about having growing up in an ingredient household. It it's got to be, be chocolate chips, it's right? It's got to be chocolate chips. Yeah, chocolate <laughs> chips for sure. Peanut butter off a spoon. Um, yep. Maybe like croutons because there might be those around mm-hmm. to like throw on salads. And then like rolled up lunch meat. That was like another super common yep. one. Yeah, that's making sense. Absolutely. <laughs> and so the concept here is maybe a parent who's like, or both parents who are saying, we don't want to have anything that you can just grab. We really value having individual ingredients because we value cooking. And maybe we're worried about what our eating or our child's eating would look like if we had all these ready to eat foods or snacks or even just like a granola bar, right? Like something quick and packaged. There's you know, I would imagine a lot of times a bit of worry over what that kind of household would create in terms of their eating habits. That's absolutely correct. For sure. For sure. Well, I mean, Abby in that clip, you know, she said it's very common for the adults in an ingredient only household to probably unconsciously want to bar their kids from eating certain foods because they definitely have some pretty strong perceptions around whole food groups or even types of foods like convenience foods. There's probably other categories of ingredient households like, you know, people who come from different cultures and, you know, it's just not in their like cultural history to eat a bunch of like packaged snack foods. And so, you know, mom or dad is like cooking quite a bit. And, you know, when they go to the grocery store, they just buy staples and they don't buy those those packaged things. But there's also the diet culture version of it, I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah. And I think what you and I are talking about right now is the diet culture version where, you know, parents or caregivers have made a very active choice to limit convenience or packaged items. Yeah. So just specifically, why would a family choose to become a quote unquote ingredient household? Yeah. So I think throughout the course of this episode, I am definitely going to highlight what I guess I'll just call examples of Jen's common nutrition lore. Uh, And these are what (laughs) I describe as pretty pervasive black and white pronouncements that I often hear around food and nutrition that don't have any real basis in science. They're essentially like phrases that have like morphed to be an accepted part of the cultural nutrition ethos. And Mm. so here we go. Jen's common nutrition lore to answer the question of why would a family become an ingredient household? I think one of the big ones is don't eat anything you can't pronounce right? Do you Mm. hear this often from clients? Oh, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. This idea that if you cannot pronounce something, you should absolutely not be consuming it. Or if your grandmother can't pronounce it. Apparently, it's always whether your grandma can can read it or not. (laughs) Or not, yeah. Um, The other one that I think is super common is the you shouldn't eat anything with more than four ingredients. Sometimes I hear three ingredients. Sometimes it's like six ingredients, but it's this like limit on the amount of ingredients in a 
food in order for it to be like considered healthy. Mm -hmm. And then I think there's some other ones that would include like families just being worried about calories and being concerned that packaged or processed foods are, you know, more energy dense and those should be avoided. I think there can also be like a super strong, like whole foods only mentality where there's this perception that um, anything that comes out of like a bag or a box is somehow inferior or unhealthy. You know, I think those are the big ones that would likely kind of drive parents or caregivers to change or shift to become an ingredient only household. Great JCNLs. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for abbreviating it. So it now can spread like all across social media. <laughs> Yeah, but those are good ones. And I hear a lot of worry and anxiety when you describe those. You know, someone would choose to implement these ideas because they're worried about their food or what's in their food or how many ingredients are on the list. And so, you know, I guess that's creating a sense of worry in the household that's going to have an impact on a child growing up there. So let's dig into what impact is being in an ingredient household have on a kid growing up in that environment? What do you think? I think there can be a lot, actually. I think, you know, one of the first things is that it tends to polarize foods. And what I mean by that is that I think it teaches a child to feel that only certain foods or food groups are acceptable or okay. It Mm -hmm. definitely imparts morality to food, right? This goes back to our very first episode on like the good versus bad food thinking. But, you know, how can you not feel that certain foods are good or certain foods are bad when you have a whole class of foods that are kept out of the house and you're not allowed to have them, right? So I think there's Mm -hmm. definitely the, you know, morality aspect of food that comes in. And then I think it creates a lot of judgment around certain foods and food groups. And that judgment trickles down to children. And the problem is that when certain foods are judged in the house, I think what happens is it translates to kids judging themselves if they want to have those foods or if they have them as a, at a friend's house, they feel somehow that they shouldn't be enjoying certain foods or that it's not okay. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's the counterintuitive impact it's going to have on a child too of, you know, just because you grew up in a house that didn't have, you know, some fun prepackaged foods doesn't mean you're not going to like fun prepackaged <laughs> foods. You're potentially going to eat more of them when you head off to college or whatever you do after high school and you get out of that house. You know, there's going to be different ways that people interpret this, but one very common way is that people are going to go, oh God, I finally have access to a, like a quick snack. This is amazing. And they're going to have to learn that relationship as like a young adult, as opposed to learning a healthy relationship with a variety of foods, some, you know, just pure ingredients and then some uh, prepackaged foods, you know, you're, you're just missing out on an opportunity to learn how to relate to those foods in a healthy way, right? For sure. But, and these are the, and these are definitely the, uh, you know, when I talk to these individuals as adults, these are the individuals that can remember very clearly going to a friend's house and just kind of like going crazy with all the packaged foods or with all the snack foods or with all the ready-made foods. I mean, those are often vivid memories for kids who have grown up in an ingredient household because of the fact that so much was off limits for so long. I mean, to do this experience of being in an ingredient household as a kid in a healthy way, you need to have a parent who's like, 
a personal chef just like standing there at the ready waiting to prepare food for you because kids have days where they're just so hungry they need like 5,000 calories because they're just growing and running all over the place and they're like six years old and they're like I'm really really hungry please can I have a snack and you know unless you have a parent that's standing there going I'm gonna whip you up some pasta hold on hold on it's going to cause a lot of stress and extreme hunger and, you know, the the whole constellation of emotions that go with being over hungry as a kid. It's going to be really stressful. And, you know, I, I think we probably have to mention, too, how just like bougie it is to be in an ingredient <laughs> yes, household. Yes, like, how like privileged. This is, yes. This is just massive privilege of time and resources. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think that, you know, like the fact that so many people can remember snacking on just a handful of chocolate chips speaks to the fact that there wasn't necessarily like a parent or caregiver there 100% of the time able to make food right from scratch. And that's okay. But the impact of that on the child is still significant. Definitely, definitely. And so that impact as the child grows up, I mean, how do you think growing up in an ingredient household and then, you know, becoming an adult, how does, what is the lasting impact? Yeah, I think the lasting impact can be significant. I think as an adult, if you've grown up in an ingredient household, you might feel guilty if you buy convenience or packaged items. Um, I've had clients that honestly feel guilty even about buying something like a rotisserie chicken because they feel mm. like, oh, no, I should, you know, I should be making this myself and, you know, this isn't a good thing to have. And so I think there's definite guilt that lingers if you've grown up in an ingredient household. I also think that there can be a lot of pressure for adults who have been raised in ingredient households. They feel like they have to do like everything with food the correct way. They might feel like they have to be meal prepping and cooking constantly or they're somehow failing nutrition. I always like to think of like in this example of like an influencer's fridge, right? Like if you see like on social media, you know, like an influencer opens their fridge and there's like 150 perfectly packed little containers with like every meal prepped meal and snack, mm-hmm. right? This is what I think people feel like they should be doing. Doing, or they're somehow failing themselves when it comes to food and nutrition. Yeah. I, I want to ask you directly, is buying prepackaged or prepared foods an inferior choice? What do you, what do you think? No, that's it. <laughs> that's it. That's my answer. No. <laughs> but why? But why? I mean, let's, I agree with you, but, but why? No. Well, okay. So I always like to say that I think there are so many ways for people to feed themselves, right? That might be preparing something from scratch. It might be using a meal delivery service like, you know, HelloFresh. It could be buying- Not a sponsor. Not a, (laughs) we are not getting kickbacks. Um, It might be buying prepared foods at the local grocery store um, and using that to make your lunches and dinners. But if buying prepared or convenience items helps reduce the stress you feel around feeding yourself, then that's 100% a positive thing. Plus, most of us do not have time to be making everything from scratch. And that's okay, Mm -hmm. right? Most of us are working or we have kids or we have other commitments and responsibilities. We might have days where we just don't want to cook and that's all right. And so anything, in my opinion, that helps to reduce the stress pressure or guilt that people feel around food is really a positive and an important thing. 
Absolutely. And just because food is in a package or was cooked in a, you know, a commercial kitchen somewhere doesn't mean it's unhealthy. Or if it has more than four ingredients, it doesn't mean it's unhealthy. If you can't pronounce an ingredient on the ingredient list, doesn't mean it's unhealthy. There's things that are hard to pronounce on there. And, you know, turns out they're totally safe. They might even be a vitamin or a mineral that was added. (laughs) And they're hard to pronounce because vitamin B12 is called cyanocobalamin. (laughs) And so, you know, it's, it's not just a given that these pieces of Jen's common nutrition lore are valid or valuable in any way. So ingredient households, I wouldn't recommend it. I, I, don't, I don't think it's valuable. <laughs> one star, one star. One star ingredient households. Exactly. I I think it's a huge bummer as a kid. It sounds like a it's very lame. huge bummer. Yeah. Okay. So we are on to the second topic of our topic extravaganza today. The second one is almond moms. Yeah. That's a good way to say it. Like you had to say it. Yes, you had to say it with like a lot of like darkness in your voice. (laughs) Yeah, this is this is a big topic that brings up a lot of feelings for people. So let's dig into it. So can you tell me what is an almond mom? Sure. So an almond mom is a parent or caregiver. It's definitely not just mothers, although we tend to just hear the phrase almond mom, um, who has an unhealthy relationship with food. And This phrase seemed to be coined, now I'm going to reveal how little I know about pop culture and reality television here, so I really had to like read this several times to understand it, but the phrase almond mom seemed to be coined during a 2012-2013 episode of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Do you watch that show? Totally, I do. <laughs> you don't, you liar. <laughs> yes, and. <laughs> um, and there was a clip from the show where one of the housewives, whose name is Yolanda Hadid, was talking to her daughter, Gigi, over the phone. Uh, Gigi was 18 at the time. I guess she's a pretty well-known model. And she mentioned to her mother over the phone that she was feeling weak from hunger because I believe like she had been on like an all liquid diet or cleanse or something like that. So she calls up her mom and she says, you know, mom, I, I, like I'm not feeling good. I'm feeling dizzy. I'm feeling weak because, and here's is a quote, all I've eaten today is half an almond. Mm. And in response, her mother, Yolanda, encourages her to just, again, quote, eat a few more almonds and chew them really well. Oh, that is bad advice, Yolanda. <laughs> yes, that is bad advice. And I watched the clip a couple times and it's actually, it was hard for me to watch because it's just like very depressing and dark, right? Just to kind of like analyze this daughter not feeling well at all in her own body because she has not eaten anywhere close to enough food. It sounds like over the past however many days and she calls up her mom and her mom says to her, you know, here, eat like four more almonds and just chew them well. It was like very disturbing. Yeah, I mean, you, you kind of want a mom to go, sweetheart, have a good meal, nourish yourself. It's okay, you know, like, uh, you know, to, to try to give that motherly support and energy for her taking care of her body. And she kind of just validated the restriction there, which is not ideal, but kind of created this term of almond mom. And so what are some other examples of what like an almond mom does? Yeah, so, you know, now since that, you know, 2012 episode, almond mom is used to refer to like any person who is encouraging or perpetuating 
regulating diet culture or disordered eating behaviors in children. It's essentially like any caregiver who's passing unhealthy eating habits from generation to generation. And so, you know, a couple examples of what an almond mom may do um, could be like food monitoring, right? Like watching what their child is eating and commenting on it. You know, things like, you know, you sure you want to eat that or you've already had enough. Um, Locking foods in cabinets, unfortunately, would be another Mm -hmm. example, right? Trying to like keep quote unquote junk food limited or restricted from people in the house. I think most of us have heard the phrase, a moment on the lips, a lifetime on the hips. So a mom Mm. or caregiver that says that one very often or nothing tastes as good as skinny feels, right? That's another one. Yeah, I know. Um, And then I think there's even more like extreme examples, like putting your child onto like a diet, right? So like I've worked with people who have been put on a diet at age nine or 10. And so, you know, forcing or encouraging or you know, making your child go onto a diet at a very young age, definitely an example of almond mom behavior. Yeah. So this is interesting because I didn't think of it. So I had a couple clients describe almond mom to me (laughs) and I didn't hear this on social media uh, because I don't really go on there, but I heard it described as a mom who is in, you know, in her own life involved in dieting and the impact on the child is watching your mom restrict herself or feel really guilty with food decisions or, you know, just just eat a couple almonds for breakfast as an example. And apparently, you know, you're telling me this, this encompasses a lot of more, um, you know, invasive parenting of like trying to get your kid to diet or restrict themselves as well. So this is kind of new to me. I thought it was more of what the mom is kind of demonstrating or, or modeling in, in her behavior. Yeah. And I, I think there's definitely a spectrum, right? So I think it could be just a mom that's dieting herself and putting her meal plan up on the fridge, right? That type of behavior, you know, all the way to putting your young child onto a diet themselves and bringing them to Weight Watchers to be, you know, weighed every single week. So definitely a, a spectrum for sure. Um, I think um, I think it's time to actually play a couple clips from uh, the very funny and fabulous Tyler Bender, um, who is, you know, online and TikTok kind of making a name for herself, um, making videos about Almond Mom. So let's play a couple TikToks from Tyler, who I think very, very much channels and encompasses the classic almond mom who bought orange juice do we just drink our calories now these are weighed out you cannot take from them that's when i said to her if you were on a deserted island would you lose weight <laughs> yeah so you can lose weight okay <laughs> some girls at the gym are on keto and i just don't know if i buy into it but here goes nothing <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like totally encompasses like the vibe of an almond mom. Let's actually play one more because Tyler makes a great video about an almond mom on Thanksgiving. So let's play that one as well. Back for seconds already. Look at you. I'm so full. They're going to have to roll me out of here. Let's go for a walk. Did you forget dressing? (laughs) Well, they only have ranch, so I don't know what I was supposed to do. Stop with the rolls. You're done. Oh, no, don't give us any leftovers. We'll just eat them. 
It's like funny. Yeah. It's like funny and sad though. You know what I mean? I'm like, it's like she does a great job, right, with these videos, but at the same time, you're like, oh, this is the very much the reality for some people, right? Growing up. The truth in comedy here is really getting you. Um so where do these almond moms come from, Jen? Uh they come from almond grandmothers, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> They don't grow on almond mom trees? No, they do not. They actually um, come from almond grandmothers. And actually, I'm sure a lot of people will relate to that statement because I feel like many times when somebody has the experience of growing up with an almond mom, they have older relatives as well that very much emulate similar behaviors. Um, And so I think, you know, what we're getting at here is that there is a very strong passing down of diet culture narratives or disordered eating behaviors. Um, And, you know, I would also say that the other thing that tends to be passed down is views around body shape and size and what's appropriate or not appropriate. So a lot of this stuff has like, you know, generational context here. You know, I think that what's tricky about this topic of almond moms is people love their moms. You know, people have a lot of compassion and understanding for why. You know, there's this generational handoff of diet culture or discomfort in in one's body or anxiety or hypervigilance about eating a certain way to try to control one's body shape or size. You know, kids look at their mother and their grandmother or, you know, I hate to make this so gendered because there definitely is male and other versions of this. Um, But, you know, people have so much compassion and they love their parents And so it's hard to talk about this in a way, but I think it's really valuable to talk about this also because, you know, I think if you're listening to the show and you like the show, you understand that there is a value to deprivation around food or control of one's body size that we're kind of all waking up and going like, this is not a helpful value, Mm -hmm. but my parents hold this value and I don't want to hold it anymore. And so talking about that division of values generationally, I think is really important. And if we just kind of hold on to like, well, I love my mom and so I'm going to forgive her and just like let it be and just kind of go along to get along. I think we're kind of missing an opportunity in our lives to really like move things forward generationally. And, you know, that that does have a lot to do with how we choose to parent if we choose to become parents ourselves. But I think also having some context, like you said earlier in the show, we have to go through our childhood a little to understand what we went through so that we can therefore change our own behaviors and then model healthy relationships with food for our kids. So, you know, a little aside here, I just wanted to say to to reflect on how difficult this topic is to talk about. And we're not saying moms aren't awesome. Moms are great. And Mother's Day just happened. And we love you moms. <laughs> and, and, I, and I agree 100%. And the other thing I think it's really worth saying is that I think, you know, nine out of 10 times that the almond mom or almond caregiver doesn't have bad intentions. Like I actually think that very often the mom is trying to keep her child healthy or trying to make the best decisions or trying to do the right thing, right? I mean, it's, I always think of like the example of, you know, if a a mother takes her child to a doctor and the doctor makes comments about body shape or size and says, oh, this is not good. This is not healthy. 
Well, then, you know, I think the mom in that moment is like trying to do the best she can, right, to make decisions for her child um, and maybe try to push or restrict or limit certain foods. You and I wouldn't agree with that method from mom or doctor, but I just don't think very often that there's any type of, you know, bad intent behind the conversations, the choices, right, the limitations. It's mostly from a place of love. It's just kind of what you and I would probably describe as, you know, like not the best or healthiest way to go about it. Absolutely. So I think this might be a good time then to talk about that that rift that happens where mom, you know, holding a good intention makes a comment. It gets translated and heard a different way by a, a child. So if a mother were to say, I'm so full, you're going to have to roll me out of here. What what does a kid hear? Because I feel like a kid is going to hear something different. What, do you think you can translate that? Can you be our almond mom translator? Yes, I will be. I will be the the kid in the almond mom household. So, if the almond mom says, "I'm so full, you have to roll me out of here," I think what is heard is fullness is bad. I shouldn't eat so much. I need to watch how much I eat because I need to avoid fullness because it's a bad thing. And so, if a mom says that's enough rolls. Stop it with the rolls. I think we heard Tyler say, what does what, what the kid hear? Rolls are bad. Bread is bad. I shouldn't be eating that food. That food is not good for my body. I need to watch myself. And if I enjoy rolls, then I shouldn't enjoy them too much. And if my mom doesn't want me eating that, then I shouldn't be eating it. Mm-hmm. And if a mom says, I don't know what this whole keto thing is about, but here we go. What does the kid hear? I need to be dieting. That diets are the way I need to relate to food, that even if I don't like certain foods or enjoy certain foods, I need to force myself to eat them because that's what's necessary in order to be healthy or good with food. So I think that distinction between what you say, even with good intentions, maybe, to what is actually heard is where this has an impact on kids. So let's say a kid grows up and has this, this this constant impact of diet culture as a result of almond momming. What impact does that have on the kid as they grow and as they become an adult? Yeah, I mean, I think for sure it can create the good versus bad, healthy versus unhealthy categorization. But I think the other thing that it can lead to often is chronic dieting, chronic weight cycling. I'd like to also probably here offer the idea of the almond mom to eating disorder pipeline. I think it's oh, yeah. very common for, you know, kids that are raised in like an almond mom household to be at higher risk for eating disorders. Absolutely. And uh, all forms of eating disorders. And, you know, that can be a very restrictive type to a binge type to a bulimia type throughout the course of one's lifespan. Mm-hmm. I think there can also be, um, for, for adults that have been raised like this, um, a feeling like you're constantly being observed with food. So it may be harder for you to eat socially or to eat in front of people, particularly the almond caregiver, right? That might be a person who it's really hard for you to make food choices in front of. So I think there's definitely this idea of being like constantly observed and watched by people because you were really used to being observed and watched as a child with food. Okay. We, we, we really did something there. We talked about almond mom's uh, every way we we could think to do it. So let's move on to the next section. Yeah. So last thing that we're going to talk about today is the clean plate club. I would actually also say like I'd put like food pushers in this category as well. But we'll call we'll kind of keep calling it the clean plate club because again that's what I think that 
people can often kind of identify with pretty well. And so, okay, what mm-hmm. is the Clean Plate Club? This one's pretty self-explanatory. Yeah, these, people know. Yeah, people know. I mean, these are kids. It's kid- a nightclub where your grandma's hanging correct, out. Correct, <laughs> correct. Where almond moms hang out. No, just kidding. Um, no, the, you know, these are the kids that were raised to always finish all of the food on their plate, no matter what, essentially. This is like you can't leave the table until you finish the food that you don't even like on your plate. That's right. Yeah. Like you have to like sit there and you may have to sit there for like a long period of time to kind of like get yourself to finish. Or you might just like eat super fast because you know you have to power through and you want to move on with your day. So like there's a lot of behaviors that can kind of result from being raised like this. The other big kind of narrative that is usually perpetuated within this idea is like that we shouldn't waste food right? Like that food waste is bad, which, you know, like I I agree with, like, I don't think anybody like likes to waste food. Like no one's dumping food in the trash and being like, oh yeah, that felt great. And so, you know, I definitely understand that, but when it's used to force like a child to eat particularly beyond fullness, then that is really not helpful. Yeah. Are there other reasons why families take on this value of like cleaning your plate other than sort of like being worried about food waste? Uh, What are the big ones? Yeah. I I mean, I think that there can definitely be like a generational aspect to this. So I feel Mm -hmm. like there is a, you know, like a whole generation of adults, particularly like those that were raised in the depression era Mm -hmm. that that trickles down for sure. And again, like that's, I mean, you can really understand that, right? Because, you know, now like you and I have never lived through a period of time where there's like literally like not enough food around, right? Like we actually can't get food if we wanted it. And so I, I mean, I understand it for sure, but I mean, the trickle down effect of that is often like these are the, you know, the, the parents that um, feel like it's almost ingrained in them that they have to push food. You have to eat the food um, because if you're not you know, you're somehow doing something really wrong. Um, So I think Mm -hmm. that can be a big one for sure. And then, I mean, I guess the other one is probably like when parents are using food as a reward. I mean, this is kind of like the finished dinner or you can't have dessert idea. So it's like you need to eat this in order to get that. I guess I'd say those are probably like the other two that like jump to mind. Yeah, yeah. And and so what does it feel like to be a kid growing up in a household that says, you know, you know, join the clean plate club and finish your food? I mean, I think, you know, indirectly what is being taught is not to trust your body, right? So, you know, if a, a child is full, but they're being told, keep eating, keep eating, keep eating, you have to keep eating, then they're essentially being taught to override their own fullness. So I think mm-hmm. there can be a disconnect that happens within a child's own body or the trust that they have in that body. I think it, there's also this idea that we are that we only deserve certain foods, like dessert, for example, if we eat like enough quote unquote healthy foods. So there's almost this like transactional quality of food that happens. Like I can have this if I eat enough of this. And, you know, that can also be like kind of consequential for people as well. Definitely. It's also a really tricky position as a parent to insist that your child finishes the food on their plate. It's just creating like wartime at the dinner table, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, I mean, yeah, for sure. I hear stories about people who just like sat at the dinner table for like an hour after dinner was done because like they didn't want to eat their peas or, you know, whatever it was. And they're just like, you know, digging their heels into the ground because they don't want this food. But the the parent is like not letting them leave the table. So, I mean, I think it can cause like a ton of like 
fights and kind of like uproar at dinner time or at any meal time, really. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I could see an interpretation of this, of like a parent with good intentions being like, oh, you hardly ate anything and I'm worried about you. And so we're going to sit here until you eat this because I think you need this food. But it's, again, communicating like, I don't trust that your body's telling you the right messages. I know better than you or whatever's on the plate is the correct amount of food to eat. And so as a kid grows up, you know, they could internalize those messages and say, I guess the correct amount of food to eat is whatever is being served to me, regardless of who is serving the food or how much they choose to serve. Right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like if we're, if we're transitioning to talk about like, you know, how, like, how is it for adults that grew up with this kind of mentality in their household, then, I mean, I think these are the folks that as adults may often not understand their own fullness or don't even really know what comfortable fullness feels like in their own body. They can also maybe experience feeling like compulsive around food once it's put in front of them or like have a really hard time leaving leftovers, like not cleaning their plate becomes almost impossible because it makes them feel really uncomfortable. And, you know, I think these are also the folks that often as adults, they might not even know what foods they like and dislike. And I know that can kind of be like a strange statement. So if you are told constantly and chronically as a child that you have to eat everything no matter what, then you're not even really given any space to determine like, what are the foods I like? What foods am I not crazy about? You're not even given the space to kind of explore likes and dislikes. Yeah, that's a really good point. I didn't think about it that way. So what are your thoughts on that idea of, you know, people get pretty uncomfortable about throwing food away or, you know, wasting food and it becomes just like a core value that like, I do not waste food. How would you sort of talk to somebody who I'm sure you've talked to many people who express that as have I, but, but how do you go about kind of, um, you know, helping them reframe? You know, I, I discourage people from participating in the clean plate club for, you know, a variety of different reasons. And the way I think I tend to go about this is reminding people that like you have a lot of choices when you eat and your choice was really taken away as a child. You didn't have that choice as a child. There was really only one path and that was to finish everything in front of you. But now as an adult, you have choices. And so if you want to pack up the rest of your food on your plate and save it for tomorrow, that's great. If you want to give the rest of the food because you're full to your partner because they want a little bit more, that's an option. If you want to throw the rest of the food away, that's okay too, right? I think that when we're talking about um, starting to learn and trust our bodies, being able to honor fullness and understand your own fullness becomes really important. So I like to start with just reminding people that even though you didn't have the choice as a kid, you have choices now and none of those choices are better than the other. They're just probably going to be different depending on how you're feeling on a given day. I, I totally agree. And I want to say, I want people to get more comfortable with throwing food away. Mm. And that sounds terrible to say, right? <laughs> because we have so much food waste in the world and it's so awful. And there are people who experience, you know, really acute hunger. The issue here is that I think if you say, all right, I have to put this in the fridge and I have to save it as leftovers because I feel so bad throwing it away. 
And then you have the guilt kind of compound as it sits in the fridge and you don't want to eat it. And then eventually you throw it away in this like big guilty huff like two weeks later. I'd rather you build a healthy relationship with saying, okay, I ate 80% of what's on my plate. I'm feeling comfortably full. I think I've had enough. I'm just going to throw this away. I think it sets up some wiring in your brain that helps you understand how to serve yourself based on your relative hunger level at that time, which is not an exact science. But I think that what we want to do is understand how much food we likely will want and play around with that. And I think if we're constantly, you know, just like allergic to throwing food away, we never like make those connections. And so I think it's important to, you know, build like a healthy relationship with like, sometimes you just got to throw some food away. It all goes back to choices with food and allowing ourselves and granting ourselves the ability to have different choices with food on different days and reminding ourselves too, that like the way we behave with food one day is going to be really different than the next day. Our hunger is going to be different. Our fullness is going to be different. The foods we want are going to be different. And so, you know, to have this kind of like hard set rule of clean your plate every single time, every single day, day after day. I mean, it doesn't allow for the fact that what we want to eat, how we want to eat, how much we want to eat, it just changes day to day. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I'd like to just transition to like final points and hot takes here. Do you have anything that's like a a burning thought on your mind you want to get out there before we wrap? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, I would probably say that, you know, the biggest kind of final point to make here is that I just think there's so much value in reflecting back on how you were raised with food. I mean, I really do believe that like an essential part of building a healthier relationship with food as adults means looking back and seeing how you were raised. And so, you know, I think that's something we don't necessarily do often or enough, but something that I think is really valuable. Yeah, definitely. And and if you work with a therapist, you're probably not going to get into the specifics of your relationship with food. I mean, it's usually it feels like in therapy, there's like bigger fish to fry and you don't end up talking about these things, but they can be, you know, in some cases pretty traumatic, you yeah, know, and sure. they could really influence how you behave around food. And then if you become a parent, how you parent your kids. And so I'm glad we got to talk about all these topics today. Um, but now I'm going to go make a very complicated meal from completely scratch ingredients, but all of them are just different forms of almonds. And I'm going to eat all of it, no matter how big a creation I, I make. Um, that sounds terrible, but uh, so I'm going to let you do that yourself. <laughs> all right. Signing off. Later, Jen. See you, Matt. Nutrition for Mortals is a production of Oceanside Nutrition, a real-life nutrition counseling practice in beautiful Newburyport, Massachusetts, where we provide individual nutrition counseling both in person and online via telehealth. Feel free to learn more about our practice at OceansideNutrition.com. If you want to send in a show idea, you can email us at Nutritionformortals at gmail.com. We're on Instagram at Nutrition for Mortals. If you're digging the show, tell a friend. Maybe give us a nice review on Apple Podcasts if you can. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.